This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and indeed the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark a little curiosity, and challenge you to think and rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, as any Leaving Cert economics student would know, markets always produce winners and they produce losers. But who are the winners and losers and what is the mechanism that divides them into these two stark camps? Now, on today's podcast, we're asking that question of arguably the world's most important marketplace or market system, healthcare. Is it fit for purpose? Can it do its job effectively? And can we make it better able to deal with the kind of crises that come along every few decades or even every century or so, like a COVID crisis? Now, to weave our way through all of this is Professor Susie Geiger. She's from the UCD Business School, and she's research group leader and principal investigator of Misfires, which is a European-funded project looking at exactly that, market failures in healthcare settings. And we're going to be talking to her because her passion, and that's her own LinkedIn I'm using for this, is understanding how complex markets are organized and how they might be made to work better. And we'll be covering a whole range of areas, including things like digital health and how the different pricing of drugs and so on um, is set. So happy to have you along, Susie, to the Business Impact Podcast. Thank you very much, Emmett. Delighted to be here. So listen, you've been toiling away looking at health markets and <laughs> I suppose the, the fissures and the fractures in there. Suddenly this thing has occurred, this pandemic. The last one we had was 1918 with the Spanish flu. So you, <laughs> you have a sense of timing, uh, however grim some of the news may be. Can you just talk to me a little bit at first about what the kind of work you guys are doing in this um, EU funded research group? And then we'll talk about the, the kind of issues you're, you're coming across. Yeah, so as, as, as you say, uh, Emmett, we're cruising along nicely, you know, doing our well-planned uh, research um, that was planned over a period of five years. Um, I'm holding an ERC, uh, European Research Council Consolidated Grant, uh, which lasts from 2018 to the end of 2023. I'm directing a research group of seven uh, as part of this grant, and we're looking at basically participatory mechanisms in healthcare markets. What I mean by that is how patient groups and civil society actors um, voice concerns about um, certain aspects of healthcare, mostly to do with access, to be honest. And we trace how these, um, you know, concerns are being dealt with by governments and industry and in collaboration with, with, you know, civil society. So to give you an example of the work we've been doing is to look at hepatitis C, which is infamously, which got infamously into the headlines uh, in about 2014 when Gilead, a company that we probably will talk about again uh, in relation to COVID, when Gilead uh, brought out the, um, at that point, most expensive drug um, ever uh, to hit the market. Um, so it was Bufir for hepatitis C at a um, package price of $84,000 per patient. And all hell broke loose because civil society actors said, that's just, you know, beyond the beyond, basically. Um, that price actually pales in comparison to what we're seeing, what we've seen since, you know, uh, we're hitting very fast, a sort of million dollar per patient uh, pricing range. But that's the kind of stuff we've been looking at as part of misfires. And as I say, we've been cruising along nicely and doing our research on 
HIV AIDS prophylaxis uh, technologies on hepatitis C, on diagnosis hackers, on participation in genomics projects, all sorts of very interesting things. And then COVID hits. And of course, as a research project that straddles the business area and healthcare, one cannot not get involved in, in COVID. So our research has taken quite a different shape since sort of March 12th or whenever it was that we were all locked away. Um, to be honest, still revolving around some of these issues like pricing, like access, um, like what we, can we do with t- digital technologies, for instance, to increase access. Um, all of these issues are still very, very valid and acutely so in the COVID era. Yes, and I mean, I probably was a little bit unfair in my introduction in the sense that I've already called healthcare a market. And I know that some of our listeners will immediately contest that idea straight away. Correct. And say it's not a market. So I'm probably already in trouble here by even making that introduction. <laughs> but do you want to talk for a few minutes about that idea? Like healthcare in most countries in the West is, you know, it's either public and private mixed together. A lot of us um, have pure state healthcare. Other places, it's purely private. If you look at the United States, certainly large parts of it. But very, very few markets have no state involved. They all have some kind of state or governmental um, funding of some description. So do you see it as a market or is it something different in the way you approach um, healthcare? Well, that's what makes it so interesting, Emmett. To be honest, it's absolutely a market. I mean, even if you have a fully state-run healthcare system, you know, the state is still a buyer. And a lot of the time, a buyer who buys from private entities. So the pharmaceutical industry is absolutely huge. Every state in the con- in, in the world is buying off the pharmaceutical industry. We have uh, medical devices. We have obviously healthcare service providers. We have a whole rake of industries that sell into healthcare. Uh, and, and that's why I think I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable calling it a market. It's one of the biggest markets imaginable. It obviously falls into lots and lots and lots of different smaller markets. Uh, we can talk about that as well. But uh, at the same time, and that's where the tension arises, healthcare is a common good. Okay, And it's probably, as we just realized in the last three or four months, it's probably the most precious common good or public good that we have. And it's that tension between so the, the, the moral balance of, of healthcare and the fact that it is you know, a business uh, for so many industries. That makes it so interesting for me as a researcher, but it also makes it so full of tensions and concerns and problems. Okay, well, let's let's delve into some of that. We've obviously got different inputs into that market. Uh, Labour, so the doctors and the nurses mm-hmm. and the other support staff from everyone from who's cleaning the wards to um, you know, taking Absolutely. out the rubbish. And, and can I just say all kudos to these people. Um, I mean, the work that they've done in the last few months is just absolutely tremendous and you know I think we we're revaluing and again value is obviously one of the things um, I'm looking at as marketing professor and we're revaluing very quickly um, what these people just you know do for us uh, as a society in providing a a very very precious public good but sorry I interrupted yeah so 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 and I would heartily agree with what you say and then the other part then of course is the inputs, the products, the equipment, yeah. the drugs. Yeah. And, and we do tend to obsess a little bit about the drugs, but of course, the medical devices, the beds, Absolutely. the physical beds, these are all usually expensive. Yeah, PPE. PPE. Um, <laughs> so all of this adds up, you know, I mean, even if you go and buy stuff like that in an ordinary retail store, you can see the kind of cost that they have. But let's talk about the drugs piece, because that tends to be the one that everyone likes to talk about, because it is yes. there is a certain controversial yeah. uh, part of to that. 
Um, the general approach, the general defense of the pharmaceutical industry has always been, we're, you know, the, the, the conditions we're treating are getting harder and harder to treat. There hasn't been a lot of blockbuster drugs mm. in recent decades. You know, these we're getting into orphan conditions where the patient numbers could be tiny. So it's getting harder and harder to come up with new treatments, things that are going to fix people up. You know, the low hanging fruit, the, the easier conditions to cure yeah. and vaccinate have been done. So that's cost, and that cost has to be um, reclaimed and recouped by the company. So you come up with patents, you come up with so so you come up with the pricing and so on. Now it's it's that central assumption that you're kind of looking at, isn't it? You're 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 getting deep <clears throat> into that idea. It it is, and it's one that's really difficult to refute. So you know the pharmaceutical industry is vital. Again, they're providing it's a business, but they're also providing a really important service public service almost you know uh, now obviously you know r&d costs as you know any pharma um rep would tell you are absolutely massive you know there's figures floating around um of you know billions of dollars of costs of, of just one uh, drug development you know when you count all clinical trials now there's a couple of things to say about that you know that's that's a very valid argument and a lot of the time that closes off any discussion but at the same time so take, you know, the most topical drug um, at the moment, remdesivir, uh, or take sovospufia, the, the drug I mentioned about um, hepatitis C, you know, both of them, uh, Gilead actually, both of them had very heavy involvement uh, from public uh, institutions. So uh, mostly the National Institutes of Health in, in the U.S., and that's just typical. That's not just Gilead. That's typical for so many pharmaceutical R&D processes that the public payer actually invests very heavily, especially in the early stages of the innovation and fundamental research grants through state bodies, through the EU, through, uh, for instance, the NIH in the States. You know, those kinds of investments, public investments, a lot of the time are the lifeblood and the initial impetus for drug development. Now, a lot of the time, the public payer actually doesn't put conditions um, on these uh, investments. So, you know, 10 years later, and it's difficult to trace those paths a lot of the time, a drug comes out and that drug gets a patent, which basically means that you have an exclusive market, a monopoly for probably another 15 years because, you know, you obviously have to apply for a patent and then five years later, you actually have the drug on the market but say 15 years, and then you can have all sorts of strategies in which you can, you know, prolong the patent and, you know, you can have multiple patents on any one drug. And there's all sorts of, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a, you know, toolbox, uh, as they say a lot of the time uh, that pharma companies have. So, you know, when you think of these two processes, R&D on the one hand, where, you know, the public investment is, is clear, but it can't always be traced to the final patent. And then this market exclusivity, this monopoly that the public payer, again, is willingly giving to the pharma company and then also acting as the buyer. So we're basically the argument goes, a lot of civil society groups uh, would argue that, you know, in a sense, the public investor is paying twice. They're paying for a lot of the R&D, especially the, the early stage R&D of a drug. And then they're paying again for super expensive drugs on the market you know, where we don't have a choice, we have to pay for those drugs because we have very, very sick people who need these drugs, you know. So the fundamental idea 
uh, at the moment floating around in civil society circles is whether we can actually break apart those two processes, okay? And they call that decoupling. So whether we can have some sort of incentive mechanism or innovation prizes or some way of rewarding companies for the R&D that they're doing, but without necessarily giving them huge time of monopoly and market exclusivity. And do you think one of those models might be a kind of a venture capital type model or, you know, where the, the state or those public institutions you mentioned takes a share in the product or, or is, it, is that hard to control because you say ownership might move along three or four different phases? Exactly. You know, we've, we've tried to, we actually did a little exercise on this famous um, hep C drug, um, silver spool theory, and, and, and just try to see, you know, how the, the patenting actually evolved. And, you know, it was just this web of, of patents here, patents there, patents for pro-drugs, patents for things that never went anywhere and then all of a sudden burst back into the line. It, it was just in an aim, uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions came on top of that. So it's basically almost untraceable. But I think what the public, what public bodies can absolutely do is to attach what um, a lot of people call conditionalities. Okay, so basically saying, if we give you grants, if we help with this early stage innovation, there has to be some payback at some point. So you, pharma company X, have to promise us that if at any stage there's a drug, you know, a blockbuster drug, you know, $5 billion um, revenue a year kind of stuff coming out of this, you know, there has to be a price cap or there has to be, you know, some sort of licensing agreement or there has to be some conditions uh, applied to that. So that's, that's one possibility. I think sort of flying kites, uh, idealistic kites, the idea of decoupling is a very powerful one. And one where now we're seeing that the time is almost right to, to really take this seriously. You know, the patent system is a very powerful system. It's what we would call a very powerful market framing system. You know, and it's there for a very good reason. And, you know, I don't want to go into the history of it. Um, but um, at the same time, in healthcare, as I said before, we're dealing with the public goods. So there has to be some at least awareness of the fact that it's not just business as usual. It's not just buying and selling consumer tech. It's actually about much, much more. And we're what, seeing that with the COVID crisis, you know, firsthand. Yeah, and what's, what's quite frightening, I find, is, is that the drugs that do get reimbursed, and Ireland is not the only country, but it certainly has happened here, um, you know, whatever patient group is on the newspapers the most, uh, and they may have very good cases to make, all of them really do, but whatever patient group makes the most noise, it sometimes seems that the, the pricers and the people who set policy in this area, whether it's the department or so on, you know, they get the politicians as well, get moved by one particular group. And then the other group that doesn't get as much kind of column inches may not get their drug reimbursed. Is that something that you kind of think is also one of the, the problems in this whole system? In fairness, you know, if I had a kid um, suffering from cystic fibrosis, I would be camping out uh, outside the dollar. You know, I'd be the first person sure. uh, in line calling for, you know, reimbursement or, or, on our cambi or whatever the drug might be. Um, so I completely empathize with any patient organization that, you know, mobilizes for, for their cause. So completely understand them. At the same time, you almost get this competition that you're describing, you know, that, you know, one patient organization gets a piece of the pie, meaning that another patient organization can't maybe get their drug reimbursed, you know, and 
So I think we have to start thinking more systemically. You know, there will always be exceptions. And, and you know, I think politicians have to, you know, they have to keep that human face as well. And they have to be moved by five-year-olds who have no quality of life if they don't get a certain drug. But at the same time, it's really important that as a society, we think more carefully about the systemic level. This, this, this market isn't working. The drugs market at, at the moment isn't working very well. Uh, corona is really interesting here because it brought out a lot of these issues into very stark relief. At the same time, it gave the pharma uh, industry a little bit of a of a break. You know, they were the bad boys for a very long time, mm. and nobody really had much sympathy for them. And uh, so, COVID nineteen showed us that we need them. But COVID nineteen, I think, also shows us that um, they need to be agreeable to play with us. And by us, I mean society. So how do you see that going, Susie? We've obviously got this Moderna and they've got some early phases. There's obviously Pfizer have entered the race. Sanofi are in there as well. I won't go through all the names, but there's a number of candidates with vaccine potential here. Mm. Um, forget the science of it, because I know you're not coming onto this podcast as a scientist. <laughs> you're a business academic, you're from a different world. Correct, yeah, yeah. yeah so we won't yeah, get yeah. you sucked into all that. But in terms of how you, you know, these these issues that you talk about, how do you see potentially how the battle for a vaccine, access to that vaccine will go um, against the backdrop that you've kind of explained it? Well, there's, there's two things. First of all, I think no company in the world at the moment can allow themselves to become the hostage of, of any one buyer, be that a state buyer or, you know, a, a private buyer. So, you know, you might remember, you know, a few weeks ago, probably six, six, six weeks at this point, um, the German company CureVac, um, you know, uh, Trump made, made some noises, let's put it that way, mm. <laughs> that they were very interested in sort of, you know, scooping up that company and basically making sure that um, US American uh, patients would, would benefit from whatever came out of their labs um, first. Um, and obviously the German government and, and in fairness, the company itself um, came out very strongly and said, no, that's not going to happen. You know, we, we're developing if we're developing a vaccine here, it has to be for everybody, which I think is, is absolutely something that companies can do. You know, they have to have access programs. So every pharma company typically has that. But I think even more now, they have to be aware that they have this societal, you know, moral responsibility. So they have to make you know, very good use of the profits they're making. And the profits are substantial, as you know, you know, to make sure that their drugs are accessible to as many people as possible in as many countries as possible. And, you know, let me completely emphasize that this is not an issue that we can sort out at a state level. This is a global level, you know, and, you know, there's, there's a very strong movement um, at the moment that, you know, any vaccine has to be a people's vaccine. And, and by people, we mean, you know, the, the global village, we mean people anywhere in the world, really. So that's really strong. So companies have to be aware of their access responsibilities. I wonder if the companies themselves are a bit nervous, though, in the sense that when they bring the vaccine to market, right at the very end, there's going to be such a scramble and you're going to have geopolitics exerting an influence here. Are, are the companies themselves worried that the governments will just absolutely walk over them <laughs> to get the vaccine at the price they want and in the quantities they want. And Well, you know, I don't have much sympathy with them because, you know, they've been playing governments against each other for a very long time, you know. So typically when state, um, you know, governments make deals with pharma companies, there are very strict um, confidentiality classes involved. So, 
for the longest time, no government was able to talk to the, to the other government saying, do you know what, how much did you actually have to pay in the end for this silver spoof your drug, you know? Uh, can we just sort of compare here and, you know, can we may, maybe both go to Gilead, again, nothing against Gilead, just as an example, uh, and negotiate with them. For the longest time, that wasn't possible because, you know, companies uh, put these really strict confidentiality clauses into contracts. So their pharma companies are well able to, you know, to, to negotiate with states, you know, and if one government comes along and says, we're going to buy up the entire supply chain of this one drug for the next three months, then, you know, pharma companies can stand up to that government and say, no, we're going to give you whatever quota it is. So, you know, we have to make sure that we're, we have enough for everybody. And that is a life issue at the moment. The other thing I think we can't not talk about is, is again, pricing and the issue of value. Because value has been, it's one of these fundamentals. I mean, I've been teaching that in marketing classes, you know, since I became a lecturer in UCD. But um, value is one of these things that has been, you know, uh, bandied about by pharmaceutical companies quite a lot. And the, the idea of value, the way the pharmaceutical companies are seeing it, is that a drug provides value if it, you know, if it saves the health system money. Okay, so again, taking a drug like remdesivir, for instance, that, you know, at the moment is being talked about as helping, you know, especially severe cases of COVID-19 patients to get out of hospital quicker. So Gilead came out a few weeks ago and said, well, typically what we would do is we would price remdesivir at a level of, okay, let's look at how many, you know, patient days, bed days we save each health system. So say, you know, if one patient comes out five days quicker, if they take remdesivir, okay, these five days probably save the Irish healthcare system, whatever, 15,000 euros, I'm speculating here, mm. you know, 3,000 a day or whatever, you know. So we could actually price, you know, a dose of, you know, treatment of remdesivir at just below this 15,000 euro mark, couldn't we? And it would still be value for money for the health system. So this is a lot of the time how drugs have been priced in the last few years. Now, it doesn't matter in that pricing, with that pricing idea, it doesn't matter whether the drug actually costs five cents to produce or 5,000 euros to produce, you know, because costs never play in here. It's that sort of notion of value as, you know, cheaper than the alternative that drug companies have been, have been playing on. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily value for the government, because what I would want to know as a government buyer is, well, you know, company X, how much does it actually cost you to uh, research, develop and produce this drug? Can you give me figures on this? Companies don't like doing that, by the way. They, no. they never do that, you know. Uh, can you actually let me know, you know, and this is the transparency that a lot of people are calling for in this market. Uh, and that we don't have at all. You know, can you let me know? Can you give me insights into the cost? And then we're being fair. We're giving you a markup on these costs because you're a business, you have to live. But I bet you, you know, with that pricing formula, you know, you wouldn't hit the 14,500 that, you know, the sort of the value-based formula would give you. So there's different ways in which you can calculate the price of a drug. And, you know, again, it depends on obviously whose perspective you're looking at in terms of whether that's fair or not. 
it's kind of you kind of do wonder is there any solution to this because in most markets you have competition right <laughs> let's mm. get back to the fundamental things here right in the sense that you know you can get you can play them off against each other you, you know they, but here in this market the drugs companies have market power that's really just unassailable right it's just because it's yeah. new particularly the newer drugs the novel drugs the the ones that literally will cure someone on something like on an overnight or after a regime of treatments like that's a huge market power that the, the the buyer, the hospitals and the Department of Health and so on, you know, just really can't fight against. But you can't really get competition in there because that's the whole point is the first person to get the drug or the first company to produce the drug. They're there on their own. It'll be years before anyone else, either through a generic or another kind of variation of the drug comes in behind them. So it must be very difficult to kind of cure that core problem that isn't really present in other markets. That's that's absolutely right. And that is a core problem. So, you know, licensing is a huge issue here. Voluntary licensing and compulsory licensing are two mechanisms that are being talked about a lot, uh, again, in connection to COVID. Um, but also public investment in R&D. And again, you know, related to some sort of, of conditionality. It's It's so important that governments actually keep you know, public R&D, that they keep researching and investing in, you know, fundamental research in these areas so that, you know, there could be potentially a, a public alternative to private drug companies, at least in certain areas, or collaboration. I mean, one thing that has been talked about a lot in the last few months is, is open innovation. And obviously, open innovation has been sort of a, you know, a trend for the last 10 or 15 years. But I think now, the last three or four months, have put open innovation into the spotlight like we've never seen it before. You know, one of the first things that, you know, everybody scrambled for when COVID hit was um, protective equipment on the one hand and ventilators on the other hand. And within a couple of weeks, we saw all sorts of open innovation collaborations springing up for both of these, you know, PPE on the one hand and ventilators. You know, companies, massive companies like Medtronic, for instance, you know, put their um, ventilator um, sort of mechanisms open source all of a sudden. You know, there are huge movements towards open innovation. Now, one of the things that I'd be really interested to seeing is whether these, this momentum can carry on after uh, COVID has abated, which hopefully will happen soon. But, you know, it's, it's such open innovation, you know, collaboration and value creation rather than value capture, I think, are the magic words here that we really need to think very, very long and hard about in this industry. Now, Susie, I, I don't want to railroad you onto prices for this entire podcast, so you are looking at other parts of access to healthcare. Can, mm -hmm. can you just give me an idea of, apart from the pricing piece, you are looking at other forms of access and how that goes wrong? Well, digital, for instance. So, um, I mean, you know, one of the issues that um, we've been struggling with in this country and, you know, in lots of other countries is access to the services. You know, um, we have an aging population, in Ireland, but everywhere in the world, really, we have a population that becomes sicker, um, tendentially with chronic diseases, because we're aging and we're living longer, which is obviously a good thing. But that means that um, healthcare systems everywhere in the world, you know, get under huge pressure. And a lot of the time, there's, there's a limit. I mean, you know, human beings are the limiting factor here. You know, we can only produce so many doctors and nurses and, you know, healthcare centers, etc., so that's, that's a bottleneck, okay? So for the last 10 years, there's been really interesting development in the area of digital health or e-health or connected health, as some people call it. You know, to give you an example, mental health, 
for instance, again, notorious bottleneck, both for children and for adults, you know, waiting lists as long as my arm to get into mental health services. There have been some really interesting uh, companies coming up with um, protocols, digital mental health apps um, that are based on clinically validated protocols, basically imitating sort of real life conversations and group therapies and all of these sorts of things that are very, very powerful. Now, with all of these things, there's trade-offs. And again, from sort of a complex market perspective, these are interesting for me. The trade-off here is that a lot of these companies are private companies. Yeah, a lot of them are based in Silicon Valley, and I did some research um, in Silicon Valley. I was there for a year looking at these companies. And the trade-off here is access versus privacy. You know, right. if I access a mental health app, you know, it's something that's very close to my heart that I don't necessarily want to share with, you know, all and sundry. But accessing an app necessarily means that I'm entrusting my data, very sensitive data, to an outside entity. And I can never be 100% sure what is going to happen to that data. Okay, so here's a really interesting trade-off, this access versus, you know, broadened access, uh, for instance, to digital mental health versus, you know, how we feel, you know, companies can deal with our digital privacy. And do you think, Susie, that's going to be something that people will get used to and they'll maybe let their privacy concerns slide? Or do you, do you think uh, it's going to go the opposite way, that this, this, this industry you're talking about is going to be only going to get so, so big before it kind of hits a ceiling because of those concerns? I think digital is the way to go, to be honest. And I've been looking at this. I was involved in a research center sponsored by um, Enterprise Island um, for quite a long time in the area of digital health. I've been looking at this for quite a long time. I think we, we can't not go down the digital route in healthcare because, you know, human, you know, human services are always going to be the bottleneck. So we have to embrace digital, but we have to do it very sensibly now. Obviously, the COVID-19 tracing apps uh, have been an interesting yeah, little exercise. Phone, yeah. yeah, a little exercise in that, you know. And the HSE, you know, again, to a very, you know, sort of accelerated, iterative, but relatively open process, um, have managed to get an app uh, out there in a relatively short amount of time that is quite aware of privacy issues um, and that got, what, over a million downloads in 48 hours. So, it can be done, you know, and I think, you know, the way we've embraced digital in the last three or four months in all walks of life and, and in healthcare as well, I mean, that fills me with hope that it's something that we can keep uh, in the system and, and, and just make stronger and better again, you know, with an eye to public good um, for the, you know, foreseeable future. Okay, well, listen, Susie, you, you did warn me before the podcast not to ask you when we'll get a vaccine or <laughs> if we'll get a vaccine. I haven't asked you that, so uh, no, <laughs> cut, no. cut, me, cut me some credit on that front. I know you were living in mortal fear of being asked that question because everyone is asking it, but nobody really and has, nobody an has the answer. <laughs> even the companies who are involved. So we we'll leave exactly. that one alone. But the rest of it's been fascinating. And good luck with your research. You're in the right place at the right time with your colleagues. Well, <laughs> certainly an interesting place. <laughs> yeah, you'll produce, you'll produce some great work at the end of it. And thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Eric.